Let's, let's just bow for another moment in prayer as we open up God's Word this morning. Father, we come before you today. We thank you for your Word. We thank you that it has life and that it uh, causes us to be washed, Lord, and made whole. And so we pray, Lord, that you would use your Word today to wash us, to cleanse us, to make us whole, to inspire us, and to challenge us. And so, Father, we pray that you would open it to us. I pray that I would be able to speak it in power and in truth. Uh, and may your Spirit be alive in your word, and may it not return to you void, for we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I was a kid, there was uh, this special on at A&W. Uh, it was five cents for a regular root beer. It was an amazing deal. So, you know, I was a teenager, right? So, you know, five cent root beer, this is, this is like fantastic. So me and a couple other friends, we met at the local drive-in and uh, we started ordering root beers. And, and we decided amongst ourselves, whoever drank the fewest root beers would have to pay for all three of us, right? So can you imagine these teenage boys drinking root beer? It's like a beer drinking contest amongst teenagers, you know? And so we drank and drank so much of this stuff, and there's no way this cheap Dutchman was going to lose. I don't care if I was 130 pounds, skinny as a rail, I drank 17 root beers that day. <laughs> I can't remember if I won or, or was second place, but I definitely didn't lose. I definitely didn't have to pay. And so I'll never forget afterwards, because we were in a drive-in, right? So the whole sidewalk was littered with these mugs, these glass uh, root beer mugs just all over the place. And, and when I was looking at today's story, this is what came to mind. All these glasses littered all over the place, because in today's story, it features a couple of boys and a whole bunch of jars. I don't know if you know, heard this story before, but that's what came to mind. I, I don't know. It's a funny story from my youth. Um, but, you know, the Bible says that whatever is written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through the perseverance and encouragement of scriptures, we might have hope. So, you know, everything that's been written in the Old Testament is for us. It's for our hope. It's for us to learn from. And so we've been studying the prophets, Elijah and Elisha, the E-prophets as I've been calling them. Uh, everything else seems to be E this and E that, so we might as well have E-prophets, right? Uh, but we've been studying them. And one of, one of the things you might have noticed, and if you haven't already, you, you will figure this out. The stories of the E-prophets there's just one miracle after the other, after the other, after the other. These miracles just keep happening over and over and over. You're just kind of like, what is going on? This is crazy. This is, this is like, like, uh, like the New Testament almost. All these miracles happening one after the other. Uh, and so that's what we're going to have a look at. Uh, one of these miracles that happened in uh, 2 Kings chapter 4, the first seven verses. And so the, the story begins with a a woman crying out to Elijah, and we realize from what she says that her husband has just passed away. And she's got two young boys, and uh, she's, she's got, and, and her husband, I guess he had borrowed some money, and then he died, and now the creditors were coming, and the creditors wanted to take her kids away from her and sell them off as slaves to pay off the, her husband's debt. Can you imagine such a thing? You thought the banks were bad today? Here, here this lady's just lost her husband, and now these guys are all, oh, whoa, we're going to take your kids too. 
where's the compassion? Where? I mean, I'm just flabbergasted by this story. It's, it's horrible. But, you know, that's the way banks are. They don't care about your life. So if you owe money, you pay up, I guess. I don't know. So anyway, she ends up crying out to Elisha, and she says, your servant, my husband, is dead. And he, you know that he revered the Lord. But now his creditors are coming to take my two boys to make them slaves. Now, it's, no, it's interesting that there's no record of this woman going to, you know, the local synagogue or, or, or seeking legal counsel or, or pleading for mercy or, uh, you know, there's no record of her doing anything but calling out to the man of God. And this was her heart. She knew that if she didn't get hope in God, if there's no refuge in God, There was no hope for her boys. They were going to get sold off into slavery. And so for her, uh, Psalm 9, verse 9 was true. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Certainly she was an oppressed woman. But she looked to the Lord. Or maybe Psalm 59, verse 16. You are my refuge, my refuge in times of trouble. Or maybe... Nahum, I'm not sure if Nahum was written at the time of her life, but the Bible says the Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. So what's your and my response when times are troublesome, when things go south? Is our first response to, you know, call up the doctor or call up the lawyer or look for somebody, maybe, you know, a politician or... What do we do? Or is our first response to call out to God, to bring it to the elders of the church? Can you pray for me? Ask God to deliver me. So this is a great lesson that we we can learn. Anyways, Elijah replies to her, well, how can I help you? What do you have in your house? Now, this is an interesting way of responding. Like the first part, how can I help you? That, that's pretty normal. Elijah is not quite sure how he can help. He doesn't have a big, huge bank account. He can pay off the debt. So he's not quite sure what to help. But I think between the first question and the second question, the Lord spoke to his heart. And he says, well, what do you have in your house? Surely you can contribute to this problem. And, and the woman, of course, doesn't really have anything. Um, but why, why would he ask that? It's intriguing to me that Elisha would ask, what do you have in your house? Because he knows God's going to do a mighty miracle to help out this woman. Uh, But for some reason, he asks, it's dependent upon what she has in the house. Um, And when I compare this question, you know, what, what do you have in your house, to other questions similar to it in the Word of God, I start to see a pattern forming. A pattern that God is interested in using what we have for his glory, rather than just kind of bringing the, the, the miracle out of thin air. He wants to use something that we have. Can you, ever, can you think of some other time in the Bible where God asks, what do you have? Maybe, what do you have in your hand? Have you heard that question before? Anybody know who, who it was asked of? Moses. Yeah. It was asked of Moses, what do you have? Moses is at the burning bush. You know, the bush is on fire, it's burning like crazy, but it's not getting burned up. Moses is like, what's going on? Comes over, God starts talking to him. And uh, 
God calls him to deliver the Israelites out of bondage. And he's like, no, 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 not me, somebody else, you know. <laughs> I, I can't talk, you know. And he starts making all these excuses one after the other. And God's like, no, 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 you. I, I, who made the tongue, you know, who made you? I, I, you're going to be the one. And he's like, no, 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 send, send Aaron, send somebody else. Moses didn't want to do it. And finally, God says, what's in your hand? Moses is like, a staff? <laughs> and God's like, throw it on the ground. See, God's going to use what Moses has, not something he doesn't have. God doesn't conjure up some magic wand and hand it over to Moses. No, he just takes your, his basic staff, this, just a stick. And God says, what do you have? And he says, throw it on the ground. You know, the, the interesting thing is that God wants us to take the things we have and pass them off over to God. Just give God what we have. What, what do you have? Do you have a car? Give it to God. Do you have a house? Give it to God. Do you have a family? Give it to God. Do you have some money? Give it to God. And what I mean by giving it to God is saying, Lord, these are for your use. You know, maybe you can give rides to people that need to go to the doctor or come to church or something. Maybe you can give shelter in your home for people that are needy. Maybe you have extra clothes that you can give away. Maybe you have extra money that you can help out change somebody's life. But whatever you have, that's God says, can you trust me with that? Can you give it to me? Can you throw it down? And Moses throws down the stick. What, ha- what happens to the stick? It becomes a snake, right? And he's like, whoa! <laughs> you know, and he's running away. And God says, pick it up. And I was like, really? <laughs> and he picks up the stick and it becomes a staff again. And he does that miracle again he just takes this basic stick that he's always had his staff and his staff becomes a snake and then the magicians in egypt make snakes and then his snake eats up all those snakes and then he picks it up and it's a staff again (laughs) and then and then he changes water into blood with the staff and then he uses the staff to call down fire and hell no not fire hail and and lightning from heaven destroys all the crops then he takes the staff and he hits the ground with it and the dust of the ground starts swarm swarms with gnats nasty stuff and then he then he swings the staff over the nile river and frogs by the millions comes pouring out of the river and then another time he he takes the staff and he hits the water with it and the water split wide open and another time he takes the, the staff and he, and he holds it up high while they're fighting a battle. And as long as he's holding that staff up there, they win the war. The Amalekites are defeated. And another time he uses that staff and he hits a rock and water comes gushing out. It's just a staff. You know, God says, what do you have in your hand? <laughs> a staff. And God says, well, I'm going to use that. And so with this woman... Elisha says, what do you have in your house? Well, I just got a little bit of, well, nothing. At first, she's just like, nothing. There's nothing there. And then, oh, yeah, there's this little jar of oil, she says. Uh, And what's interesting about this is what this is what the Bible says. God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty. Isn't that cool? You might think, oh, I don't have anything. Moses is just, it's a stick. It's a staff. The woman is just like, I have nothing. 
oh, except this little bit of oil. It's nothing compared to the debt. Compared to the debt she owed, it's just this tiny little jar of oil. It's not, there's nothing. But throughout the Bible, God has this wonderful habit of taking these little nothings and making them into something. The things themselves are nothing. But with God's power, they become incredible. God, you, Elisha, remember Elisha? He uses a jacket to part the, the waters of the Jordan River. Uh, last week, we talked about how Elisha used a little bit of salt, threw it in a well, and it became pure. Uh, maybe in a few weeks, we'll talk about him throwing a piece of wood in the water and an axe head floating. <laughs> uh, these are just little simple things. David used a slingshot. Samson used a jawbone. Uh, simple items that people had, but they were endued with power from on high. So what do you have? What do you have? What's interesting, I, I find, is this verse in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. 7. Uh, it says, what makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you have not received? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not? You know, it's funny, you know, when we have a gift that the Lord has given us, do we use it for his kingdom? You know, I have a gift of building stuff. Do I use it for God's kingdom? God had given me a gift of preaching and teaching. Do I use it for God's kingdom? What has God given you? And what are you using it for? The cool thing is God gave you all these things, not just so that you can indulge in them and use them for yourself, but... God gave them so you could bless other people. You know, there are many religions in the world that call people to do great things. And if you do this great thing, then God will bless you. Um, you know, like maybe the Muslims, for instance, they're called, they need to do this great trek to Mecca. And if they get to Mecca, then God's going to bless them. And what I find interesting is, although God calls a lot of his people to great things, he almost always starts with a very small thing. And so with this woman, he just starts with pouring water from, from a, or, or sorry, pouring oil from a little jar. God calls us to use the faith that we have to do great things. And as I was thinking about that, I started thinking, well, yeah, but God called some people to do some pretty tough, big things. Like, you know, there wasn't just a small thing. And, of course, I thought right away of my favorite character, Gideon, in the Old Testament. This guy's amazing. You know, he conquers this huge Midianite army with 300 men. It's an incredible story. And God challenges each step of the way to, to shrink his army and have faith. And it's incredible. But what's interesting is that Gideon himself is like Moses. He doesn't really think he has any. He's like, like this woman uh, who doesn't think she has anything. Because when God first shows up to call Gideon into battle, uh, this is what he says. He says, uh, the Lord turned to him, go in the strength you have and save Midian out of, out of Israel, out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? I love that. God isn't calling him to, to do something that he doesn't have. He says, you've got the strength to do this. He's, God believes in Gideon, in other words. He says, you got the strength to do this. But Gideon doesn't believe in himself. Look what he says. Uh, but Lord, Gideon asked, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my family. He looks at himself, and he just goes like, come on. I can't save anybody. God says, go on the strength you have, not the strength that I'm going to give you, not the strength that 
uh, you know, you're gonna, you got to find somewhere. I'm not going to give you miraculous powers. I'm not, no, you already have this. That's, uh, this is what I love about God. He just takes what we already have, and he says, give that to me, and I will use it for great things. God saw his strength giving head, but he didn't see it. Pretty much the same for Moses, pretty much the same for this woman. Oh, it just got this little jar. So she says, let's put this up on the screen. Your servant has nothing at all, she said, except a small jar of olive oil. Jesus does the same thing, doesn't he? Do you remember what, what happened when Jesus was teaching and preaching and all the crowds are there and there's busy and it's getting late at night and, and finally, you know, people are starting to get hungry and the disciples go like, hey, Jesus, I think you should send everybody away so they can go buy some food. And Jesus turns to them and says, well, why don't you guys feed them? And the disciples are like, yeah, right, like six months' wages couldn't buy enough food for all these people. What, what do you think we are here? <laughs> And Jesus says, what, listen to what he says, how many loaves do you have? Amen. What do you have? Right? And the disciples are like, well, five loaves and two fish. And then John adds, but how far will they go amongst so many people? I love that. You know, it's just like practicality. Like, that's ridiculous. You can't five, feed 5,000 men plus women and children with five loaves and two fish. This is not going to work. But Jesus is asking us today, I believe, what do you have? What do you have? Of course, 5,000 people got fed. 12 baskets are picked up afterwards. The The little that you have doesn't matter to God as long as you're willing to put your faith in Him. So Elijah says... Go around and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. And then go inside, shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour the oil into the jars, and as each is filled, put it to one side. Now, you know, she's got this little jar, and she's going to collect all these big jars, right? And she must be going like, the prophet's gone mad. He doesn't understand uh, fluid dynamics here, you know? You can't just keep pouring out of a small jar and and fill up big jars one after the other. Or maybe the prophet's doing a miracle. I don't know. This is weird. Somehow she decides to obey what the prophet has said. Uh, And so the interesting, and and Elisha says, don't ask for just a few. (laughs) You see that next slide? Don't ask for just a few. So in other words, collect a lot, you know? Go to A&W, get a lot of those mugs. <laughs> Haul them over, you know? <laughs> Line them up. We're going to fill them all, you know? Uh, don't just ask for a few. I love that. You know, the thing is, when although God asks us, what, what do you have? And he's not expecting you to pull a rabbit out of your hair, you know? He's just saying, what, what do you have? But then, invariably, God asks you to step out in faith. You know, Gideon had the strength that he had. Moses had a staff. But they still had to go. Moses had to go and face Pharaoh. Gideon had to go face uh, hundreds of thousands of Midianites. You know, not an easy thing. So God takes what we have. But then he says, okay, now I want you to add some faith to that. 
You know, and can you imagine this woman going, knocking on the door? Hey, Mrs. Jacobs, uh, can I borrow some jars? Oh, yeah, sure. You know, she's just a new widow. So, yeah, absolutely. Well, how many do you need? Well, all you can spare. What's it for? Oh, well, uh, the prophet said that, you know, I'd be pouring oil into the mall. Where are you going to get all the oil from? Well, a little jar I got. Uh, What? Yeah, that's what the prophet says. He's going to keep pouring Okay, this death of her husband's gone to her head, you know. Can you imagine what was going on in the neighbor's heads, you know, like as she's doing this? And yet, it seems like she was faithful, and she went out and she did. It doesn't actually say that she did, but it seems from the story that that's what she did. Uh, The thing is, God wants us to step out in faith and start collecting jars, collecting whatever, doing whatever we need that he's calling us to do to get the job done. And uh, so that's what the woman does. Um, Imagine her carrying all these things back to her house, you know, like dozens and dozens of jars and and, uh, A&W mugs and setting them all over the place, you know. Uh, Can you imagine what she's thinking? I wonder if this is going to work. I can imagine that. (laughs) That's what I'd be thinking. I'd be like... Sure hope this works, because otherwise it's going to be really embarrassing bringing all these jars back to all the people and says, yeah, it didn't really work. So she had to have faith. And look what it says. It says she left him and shut the door behind her. And so I find this very interesting that she that Elisha says, go into your house, shut the door. Maybe all these neighbors were laughing at her. Maybe, I don't know, the Bible doesn't actually say. Maybe these neighbors didn't have a lot of faith. But she's supposed to go into the inner, inside her house, shut the door, just her boys and her. And that's where the miracle is going to take place. It's not to be seen by outsiders. It's not to be, it's going to happen in secret. Um, Maybe many people in the community thought, oh, the time for miracles has passed. You know, Elijah's dead, so... That's over. Uh, I don't know. Uh, You know, Jesus did a lot of miracles. And a lot of times he told people, don't tell anybody about this. Why is that? I'm I'm not really sure. But what I've noticed is that healings don't seem to take place in hospitals. They take place in churches where there's no doctors to verify. This person really was sick and now they really are better. There's just word of mouth. It seems to happen in places where there aren't a panel of doctors standing around going, well, let's see if this miracle thing really works. You know, when there's skeptics in the room, a lot of times, in fact, I've heard of pastors saying, you know, anybody who believes that this woman is going to walk out of this wheelchair, please stay in the room. Everybody else, out. Get out. Leave. Because God's going to do a miracle here. We don't want people who are just curious to see whether it really happens or not. We want people here praying who know it's going to happen. That's a challenging thing. That's when miracles take place. Remember when Jesus uh, was approached by the synagogue ruler and uh, he goes to, to the synagogue ruler's home where his, the, the guy's daughter has just died? And he comes in, and everybody's weeping and mourning, and he says, oh, hey, everybody, it's okay, she's just asleep. And they start laughing at him, because they know she's dead. And then what does Jesus do? He kicks them all out. He says, get out of here. We don't need you. And so the, the grieving father and mother, maybe, I'm not sure, they're the only ones 
there in the room to watch the miracle happen. Why is that? I think it's about faith. You know, when, when Peter went out to, to pray for Dorcas, Dorcas had died, and she had done a lot of wonderful things. Uh, in Acts chapter 9, verse 40, Peter says to everybody, everybody out, get out. Get out of the room. And he got down on his knees and prayed, and turning towards the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, arise, or Tabitha, get up. And she opened her eyes and sees Peter and gets up. Why, why the aloneness? I think when God does some big business in needy souls, he does it where the unbelievers and the scoffers are not. Well, the boys are bringing jars to her, their mom, and she's, she's just pouring out all that oil, and um, she gets, you know, one jar after the other, and they're putting them aside, one after the other. I can imagine this is exciting stuff, you know. Like, look at this. This is incredible, you know. And she just keeps pouring oil into these, these jars, and they keep filling up well, one after the other. Uh, and, uh, and then she says, okay, bring me another one. And the son says, oh, there, there aren't any more. And then the Bible says, then the oil stopped. Now, I don't know, the Bible doesn't say this, but I can imagine that the woman goes like, oh man, I knew I should have got more jars. Can you imagine her thinking that? That's, that's what goes through my, I knew I should have got more. I knew I should have asked a few more people. But somehow she didn't, you know. She's got this whole rock full of oil and in jars now. Uh, and you see, in the middle of God doing the miracle, it's easy to believe, you know, like, wow, wow, wow. But her faith and her action had to come before the miracle. She had to go around and get all these jars before the miracle. She, once, once the miracle had stopped, she couldn't now go running off and getting some more jars. It was too late for that. And so the faith had to come before the miracle. Um, whatever faith asked for, faith got. But when faith didn't act bigger than that, nothing bigger happened. <clears throat> Later in Elisha's life, uh, King, um, king Joash of Israel comes to the king, or comes to Elisha. Elisha is actually quite sick at this time. He's quite elderly. And uh, Joash says to him, you know, like, am I going to defeat the, the Syrian army? And, and, you know, Elisha says, oh, shoot some arrows and this, various things. And then, he's, then he says, he takes three arrows and he hands the arrows to Joash. And he says, strike the ground with these arrows. And Joash takes the, the, the arrows and whack, whack, whack. Sort of the normal thing to do, right? And Elisha goes, what are you doing? Why did you stop? Joash is probably like, what do you mean? And Eli Elisha says, you should have walked the ground five or six times because then the Lord would have given you victory over the Syrian army five or six times. But now he's only going to give you victory three times. And you're not going to completely wipe them out. Okay. Well, that <laughs> seemed a little strange. But somehow the number of whacks on the ground were the number of victories he was going to get. Uh, so, the number of vessels or the number of jars that were brought were the number of miracles that she was going to receive. 
And this is a great lesson for us to expand our concept of what God is going to do. You know, the Bible says, uh, uh, what's that benediction I always give? I'll look it up. Now, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. (laughs) You know, this woman had no idea how much oil was going to come out of that little jar. But that's who we're working with. A great God who loves to do great things for his people. And he wants to know about faith. You know, God's power is actually limited by the amount of faith people put in God. You know, uh, when Jesus entered a house one time, there was a couple of blind guys there, and, and, and they, they came to Jesus and said, hey, can you heal us? And Jesus says, do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they, they said, yes, Lord. And he touched their eyes and he said this, according to your faith, it will be done to you. Not according to my power, not according to my authority, but according to your faith, it will be done to you. And they were healed. Wow. Sometimes, you know, I've said before that I think sometimes people get carried away with this thing that, you know, you're, and they try to muster up all this faith. But Jesus talks about a tiny little bit of faith. Faith like a mustard seed that is able to move mountains. Faith either is or it isn't. That's that's the thing that Jesus says. Either have it or or you don't. Um, And so, it's interesting. And then he finishes, he says, their eyes were opened and Jesus warned them sternly, see that no one finds out about this. It's another indoor secret healing. (laughs) Funny about that. Anyways, another time, Jesus says to a centurion, who says to Jesus, you know, like you have power over distances and you can heal over distances. And Jesus says to him, as you have believed, so it shall be done for you. Faith is powerful. Uh, the woman who touched him on the way to, to raise that, the, the uh, synagogue leader's daughter, she touched him and she was healed. And Jesus said, take courage, daughter. Your faith has healed you. Not my power has healed you. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was cured from that very hour. Now, you know what the opposite of this is? When Jesus went to Nazareth, his hometown, and all of his family said, you know, like, who is, who is this guy? Who does he think he is? He's preaching in the synagogue. He thinks he can heal people. But, I mean, we know him. He grew up here. We, you know, his sisters and brothers, they're here with us. <laughs> you know, his father and his mother, we know them. He's nobody special. And you know what the Bible says? The Bible says that Jesus could not do any miracles there except lay his hand on a few people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Now, I want you to notice something about this. It doesn't say he would not do any miracles there. What does it say? He could not. Jesus can't do a miracle? What? What in the world is the Bible saying? Like, this is shock. This is a shocking verse. He could not do any miracles. The issue is that God limits Himself to the faith of His people. He's always done that. He always will do that, and it's challenging. Uh, the Bible says, "Faith without works is dead," and James. 
talks about a whole passage about that. You know, you can say, oh, I got faith, I believe, I trust God, I this, that. Okay, then show it by your actions, you know? Uh, and this is why sometimes people say to people who are in wheelchairs, why don't you get out of your chair? It's an act of faith. It's why we often call people to the front of the church to anoint them with oil for the healing of the sick. It's an act of faith to walk down the aisle, ask the elders in the church to pray over you. It's an act of faith. And it is part and parcel of the healing process. And so that's what we do. Um, so anyways, back to our story. I keep going off on all these rabbit trails. but <laughs> Back to our story. Verse 7. She went out and told the man of God. And he said, go and sell the oil and pay your debts. And your sons can live on what is left. Now you might be wondering, like, well, how much money could she get for this oil? I mean, you know, like, I don't know how many jars she filled. Even if she filled 100 jars, like, how much can you get for that? Well, apparently quite a bit. You see, in, in uh, ancient Palestine, olive oil was the thing to have. I mean, you cooked with it. You softened your leather, leather with it. You, you lit your homes with it. I mean, it was everything. It was, the, you know, the, the thing to have. So she apparently was able to make quite a bit of money. But she was told first to pay off her debt. You notice that? I, I remember listening to a sermon by Crofella Dollar. And Crofella Dollar was going on and on and on about how God was erasing debts. And he was telling story after story. In fact, he told the story of this, this woman and, he, and the axe head and, and various other stories from the Bible. And I was like, I was listening to this and I was like, there's something wrong with what he's saying. And I couldn't figure it out at first. And eventually I realized what, he was, what was wrong. He kept saying that God was going to erase the debt. But you know, in every single instance, God did not erase the debt. God paid for the debt every time. He paid the debt. And that's what God does. He paid our debt, didn't he? He died on the cross to pay for our sins, to wash our debts away. And so in this story again, God doesn't just go and erase the debt. He pays for the debt. He pays gives the process in order for the debt to be paid. And that's what God is able to do when we give him what we have. He's able to pay. Uh, you know, what, what's interesting is Matthew says this, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, maybe a debt you owe them, leave your gift there in front of the altar, and go and be reconciled to them first, and then come and offer your your gift. This is a principle. It, it means that we need to pay off the people that we owe. As a Christian, it's our responsibility to pay our debts. And God says, actually, it's so important that you pay off your debts that don't come and offer, don't bring your offering to me. Don't, don't come and tithe to me first. Pay your debts off first. Then come and offer your gift to the Lord. Uh, and some, a lot of times people get this backwards uh, and they think that, oh, well, God will help me pay off the debts, but I, I got to pay out. And I do understand the idea of first fruits given to God. That is also an important thing to do. But don't forget that God calls us to be faithful and pay off our debts that we owe. And sometimes I, I hear Christians boasting about how they got out of a debt and they didn't have to pay it. And, and I'm like, but that doesn't feel very Christian to me. Anyways. I don't want to get in there. <laughs> uh, then Elisha says this at the very end. You and your sons can live on what's left. I love that. Uh, 
One of the marvels is that God doesn't just pay off our debts. He gives us extra. God gives us bountifully. He just loves to dump on us, you know, and loves to give it to you. And, and, and there was extra. She could sell and pay off the debt, rescue her sons from slavery, and still live on the rest for a considerable period of time. Uh, God is able to do exceedingly more than we expect, isn't he? Um, so I want to bring this to today. Because some of you might be tempted to go home and go like, well, so what do I have here? I've got cornflakes, I got, you know, this, I got that. I wonder how God's going to multiply this stuff for me today. It's not going to work like that, okay? What you have to realize is that she was obedient to Elijah, Elisha because the word of the Lord was spoken through Elisha. And so you need, we also need a word from the Lord. We need the Holy Spirit to speak to us to tell us what to do. We can't just do this willy-nilly all over the place and expect God is going to just repeat all these miracles because, well, why not? Uh, Why not is because maybe God hasn't told you what to do. So the first thing we need to experience this kind of experience that uh, this woman had is the word of the Lord coming into our lives to tell us what to do. Um, But... One of the things that we realize from Scripture is that the word of the Lord has already come to us and has already told us what he's promised to give us and how he's promised to give us if we ask for certain things. And so, you know, this story is all about oil being poured into uh, vessels or, or the, probably clay pots, right? Clay jars. Um, and the interesting thing is that all through the Scriptures, what is oil referring to holy spirit we all know that it's it's very common idea and throughout the scriptures and what are earthen what are called earthen vessels in the scriptures we are right so uh, to me this is a really cool picture foreshadowing in the old testament what's going to happen in the new testament this outpouring of the holy spirit on the church and the earthen vessels are us and we're going to be filled with the holy spirit uh, i just asked those two questions everybody seems to already know this you know so i don't even have to preach it but this is really cool um so now i want to get down to the point this is the point in ephesians 5 verse 17 and 18 it says this Do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, but instead be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is God's will. God has already commanded us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We don't have to go around going, I wonder, Lord, is it your will that I be filled? No. He's told us to be filled. We know that it's his will. And I want you to check out this verse from John, John, uh, 1 John 5. And this is the confidence we have in approaching God. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask of him. Okay, so we just saw a verse that said it's God's will for us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And now we've seen a verse that says if you ask whatever is in God's will, he's going to do it. So what ought we bring to the Lord today to fill this earthen vessel? These bodies of ours, God is calling us to have them filled. Whatever, what do you have? You know, God is saying to us today, what, what do you have right here, right now? And I love what Peter says when, the, when he's preaching on the day of 
Pentecost. And the people say, what must we do to be saved? And Peter says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. This is step number one if you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Repent and be baptized. That's why we have baptism class coming up. That's why we're calling people to get baptized because this is step number one. Profess that you're a Christian. And then he says, what does he say? You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The filling of the Holy Spirit is is Christ's desire to fill us with his spirit. And I love it. He says, the promise is for you and your children and all who are far off. This is a promise, folks. So I I don't know if you're, you're getting this, right? We're commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We're told this is God's will. We're told if you ask in God's name, in God's will, he will give it. And we're told this is a promise from God. This is a, this is a win-win situation. So I just want to call us today to just a few minutes of silence. And let's bring this vessel before the Lord and call upon his name to fill us afresh with the Holy Spirit. And then I will pray for you. Just... Start on your own, quietly in your seat, and then I will pray that the Holy Spirit would come into this place. Lord, we confess that we have not sought your face as we ought to have. We confess that we are We've not always asked for the the filling of your Holy Spirit. And we know, Lord, that we ought to be filled every day. Come to you every day for a fresh anointing. And so, Father, we pray that even as on that first day of Pentecost, when you came with a mighty rushing wind and tongues of flame spread throughout the community, Lord, we pray that you would come upon this place in great power. Pour out your Spirit upon us, Father. Come, Lord Jesus, bring your spirit into our hearts. Allow us to be filled to overflowing so that we might be your witnesses both here in Ottawa and in Ontario and Canada and to the ends of the earth, Lord. We offer our lives as living sacrifices to you. We ask, Lord, that you would fill us now with messages from you. May our neighbors hear your voice through us. May people around us be astounded by your Spirit's life in us. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.